This episode of Historium is brought to you by Blueberry. Not the fruit, the podcast hosting service. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, now is the time, and Blueberry is what you should be using to host that podcast. Blueberry is the gold standard for podcast hosting and provides accurate stats, your own WordPress website, and an easy-to-use format for you to get your podcast out into the world. And right now, you can get your first month free. That's right, free. All you have to do is go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. That's orbitaljigsaw.com history. And start your journey into podcasting right. Ever since I did episode 23 about the carrier pigeon Cher Ami, I realized how much of an impact animals can have on history. So I decided to dig deeper, and I found a treasure trove of small stories about animals of all kinds. But there were way too many stories for just one episode. So I decided to turn this topic into a three-part series of mini-stories. So without further ado, I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Mini-Storium. Episode 34, Animals, Part 1. Mini story number one, Acoustic Kitty. In the 1960s, at the height of the Cold War, the United States had a problem. The Americans were eager to get any information they could from the Russian diplomats on their soil, so they bugged the hell out of the Russian embassy. Since the Russian diplomats weren't born the day prior, they knew that they had to do their secret conversations in a paradoxically more secret place, the public. Russian agents would simply meet in a public place, like a subway station or a park bench, and do their talking there. U.S. agents who observed them knew this was occurring, but they had no way of listening. These agents, tired of having Russian secrets so freely exchanged on American soil, desperately sought a way to listen to these illicit conversations. And eventually, they became very creative. Enter a house cat. In an hour-long veterinary procedure, a small microphone was implanted into a cat's ear, as well as a radio transmitter connected to a cat's tail. This upgraded cat could now record and transmit the sounds from its surroundings. But the term herding cats is a phrase because cats are notoriously hard to command and control. However, $20 million later, the CIA agents were confident in their ability to navigate the cat and eavesdrop on the Russian diplomats' conversations. On a weekday in 1967, the CIA operatives were in place. They had been tagging two Russian diplomats who had left the embassy and just had to be talking about Russian secrets in the open air of Wisconsin Avenue. They pulled up their van, equipped with state-of-the-art recording sound equipment and one small, acoustic-oriented cat. The agents opened the back doors of the van and quickly released the cat onto the Washington, D.C. pavement. They then immediately closed the doors and put on their headsets, eager to hear the Soviet secrets, when instead, they heard the sound of their million-dollar cat being run over by a taxi cab. Mini story number two, Jumbo. An African elephant was born on Christmas Day in 1860. His mother was killed by poachers soon after, and this elephant was sold through various traders, eventually ending up in the Paris Zoo in France. He was named Jumbo, after the Swahili word for chief. Jumbo was famously fond of children and gave plenty of Parisian children rides through the zoo. Jumbo was eventually sold to the English for their zoo in London, fetching top dollar. 
While in the London Zoo, Jumbo was a featured attraction. However, in February 1882, Jumbo was sold to P.T. Barnum for Barnum and Bailey's Circus in the United States. English zoo-goers were furious. Over 100,000 schoolchildren rode into Queen Victoria begging for her to somehow prevent the sale of their beloved elephants to the Americans. However, it was too late. Even after several international lawsuits, Barnum and Bailey maintained the rights to their new elephant. Jumbo immediately went on display at Barnum and Bailey's enormous circus exhibit in Madison Square Garden, earning P.T. Barnum more than he paid for the elephant in just three weeks. Jumbo was one of the circus's most popular attractions and traveled throughout the states with the circus. Jumbo reportedly had a very friendly temperament and was quite fond of children. In 1884, Jumbo was one of Barnum's 21 elephants that crossed the Brooklyn Bridge to prove that it was safe after fears of a potential collapse. The next year, Jumbo had just finished performing for a show in Ontario. As he was crossing several sets of train tracks to board the circus boxcar, an unexpected train engine came roaring down the tracks. Jumbo was struck and the train derailed. Jumbo was mortally wounded. A few minutes later, Jumbo the elephant died, surrounded by misfits, freaks, outcasts, and friends, halfway around the globe from where he was born. Ever the showman, P.T. Barnum put Jumbo's remains on display for circus spectators. Jumbo's skeleton now resides in the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Jumbo still lives on today in the form of a word, an adjective denoting great size. I now realize that the first two mini-stories were about animals being hit by vehicles. I wish I could say this next mini-story is more uplifting, but I regret to inform you that it is definitely not. Mini-story number three, Trial of the Swine. In the medieval era, as strange as it sounds, animals were often put on trial like normal people. While this sounds like something a modern animal rights activist would appreciate, this is not a story those people would appreciate at all. During those times, it was commonplace for birds to be caught and killed for chirping during church service, dogs slaughtered for getting into the church's supply of communion wafers, or a chicken being burnt at the stake for laying an egg on a church pew. But of all of these absolutely insane stories, there's one gruesome tale that truly takes the cake. Times were tough in Bourgogne, France in 1457, and when times get tough, you have to make sacrifices. But many of these sacrifices have to be made by animals. If your family is struggling to find enough food to eat, it's hard to justify feeding your animals more than just enough to merely survive. You'd rather see your pig's ribs than your child's. It turns out one family ended up seeing their child's ribs anyway, when their starving pig got out of its pen and into the house and then proceeded to eat the baby in its cradle. The parents came in and witnessed one of the most horrific scenes imaginable and quickly took their baby from the jaws of this pig and ran into the streets. City guards heard the commotion and captured the squealing pig with a bloody mess around her snout. Her six piglets squealed from their pen. The pig was taken and immediately put on trial where a local prince bishop scolded the pig and sentenced her to death. The pig was taken outside and dressed up in a man's clothes. Then it was marched to the gallows in the market square, and a noose was placed around its neck. 
The town executioner pulled the lever, and half the town watched a fully dressed pig be hanged. And I guess that felt like justice in a very, very strange way. The six piglets were also put on trial, but were pardoned due to the negative influence of their mother and the fact that it could not be proven that they had been complicit in their mother's crime. Mini story number four, Project X-Ray. After the Japanese had attacked the U.S. Navy base at Pearl Harbor, the day that will live in infamy, you know the one, military commanders and U.S. senators and essentially anyone involved or who was about to be involved in the Second World War sought out strategies to fight back against the now sprawling Japanese Empire. They began firebombing Tokyo, but were worried that soon the Imperial Japanese Navy would find a way to begin hitting San Diego or Seattle or San Francisco. They were desperate for ideas on how to be more effective with their destruction. So desperate that when a friend of Eleanor Roosevelt, a dentist from Pennsylvania, proposed a harebrained scheme, Roosevelt and the War Department actually listened. Small-town dentist Lytle Adams was traveling through Arizona when he heard about what had happened at Pearl Harbor. He was just leaving Carlsbad Caverns and had witnessed hundreds of thousands of bats pour into the orange and pink evening sky. And he had an idea. Each of these bats could be outfitted with a small incendiary bomb and let loose above Tokyo, where the bats would find dark places to hide in, under awnings and attics and such, and then each would explode, causing seemingly random fires in a wide radius of the city. And then the Japanese, with their superstitions and strange beliefs, would make them believe that they were being cursed or punished by an angry god or whatever other racist things a small-town dentist thought the Japanese believed. And their morale would plummet and they would surrender to the United States. At least that was the idea. Adams pitched his idea to an old friend, Eleanor Roosevelt, who then pitched this idea to her husband, FDR, who then pitched the idea to his Secretary of Defense, who probably said something along the lines of, hell, why not? The United States spent three years and several million dollars developing what was called the Project X-Ray, which involved collecting tens of thousands of hibernating Mexican free-tailed bats and strapping on small canisters filled with napalm. They performed several tests on mock Japanese cities made of bamboo and found the results to be incredible. The ratio of the destruction caused versus the size of the payload was almost unparalleled until the Manhattan Project was finished right before Project X-Ray. The Allies sought a quick end to the war and did so using the most powerful weapon ever developed by humankind. For the rest of his life, the dentist Lytle Adams maintained that his plan would have led to Japan's surrender without such a tremendous loss of life. Perhaps, with the help of some helpless suicide bomber bats, maybe he was right. Mini story number five, model employee. James Wide worked for the Cape Town Port Authority in South Africa in the 1870s. He quickly gained a reputation for himself by frequently jumping between rail cars, eventually earning the nickname Jumper. A nickname like that came with some degree of risk, and one day, he missed a jump and was ran over by a train. However, James survived, but lost both of his legs below the knee. He was confined to a wheelchair, but was allowed to keep his job. However, his job was exceedingly difficult with his new lack of mobility. 
Jumper decided he needed some help. Enter Jack. Jumper met Jack at the local market, leading an ox wagon. He was impressed with his intelligence and decided he would hire him to be his new work assistant. Eventually, Jack learned how to push Jumper to work in his wheelchair, switch the train signals, and even hand the conductors their keys. He quickly became an invaluable asset to Jumper's work. However, there's something I neglected to mention about Jack. Jack was a monkey. A baboon, to be exact. Jack the Railway Baboon soon became somewhat of a local celebrity, as people from all over South Africa would come to see the monkey work. One day, a woman was riding in a train to Cape Town when she witnessed the horrifying sight of an animal doing the job of a signalman. She clutched her pearls and quickly reported the incident to the Port Authority. A railroad manager was immediately dispatched to the station to fire Jack and Jumper, but when he arrived, Jumper pleaded for their jobs, begging for the manager to test Jack the baboon's skills. Thinking there was no way the baboon was as competent as Jumper claimed, the manager acquiesced. He instructed an engineer to sound a train's whistle and watched, shocked, as Jack made the correct signal changes. The manager threw several challenges at the baboon, but Jack was unfazed. He passed all of the tests with flying colors. Jumper was hired back to the railroad, along with Jack, who actually became an official employee earning 20 cents a day with a bottle of beer bonus at the end of each week. Jack the Railway Baboon served in this capacity for nine years before eventually passing away in 1890. With Jack's death, Jumper elected to retire, but was always quick to tell the story of Jack the Railway Baboon, the monkey that in his nine years of service never made a single mistake. Mini story number six. Cairo. White House Correspondents' Dinner, 2011. People think bin Laden is hiding in the Hindu Kush, but did you know that every day from 4 to 5 he hosts a show on C-SPAN? <laughs> President Obama had an incredible poker face while laughing at Meyer's joke, because he had already given the order to initiate a raid of bin Laden's compound earlier that day. The next day, in the cramped situation room, President Obama leaned forward towards the monitor, his hands in front of his mouth. He was surrounded by many members of his cabinet as well as several high-ranking military leaders. They watched night vision footage and overheard the radio communication between two dozen Navy SEALs packed into two stealth Apache helicopters. But there was one more personnel on board, a dog named Cairo. The Belgian Malinois, essentially a smaller German Shepherd, was wearing a tactical, bulletproof vest and was outfitted with a night vision camera. Cairo's job was to sniff out explosives and pursue anyone from the compound that attempted to flee. The second helicopter landed near the compound and Cairo and his handler emerged. Cairo and several SEALs secured the perimeter as another group of SEALs entered the compound. Cairo waited obediently as faint gunshots from small firefights echoed through the compound. He helped look intimidating as his handler and a CIA translator turned away any curious Pakistani citizens. 38 minutes since the choppers first landed, the American forces emerged with the body of bin Laden and a few dozen other occupants of the compound, handcuffed by zip ties. They loaded bin Laden's corpse and several bags full of hard drives into the helicopters. Cairo and his trainer hopped on and the helicopter took off. Cairo, a soldier through and through, didn't react to the success of the mission. 
remaining blissfully unaware of the international importance that the mission had just served. After the mission, President Obama directly met with each Navy SEAL that participated in Operation Neptune Spear. What a name, by the way. In a private ceremony, President Obama honored each SEAL involved in the operation, but towards the end, he asked to see Cairo. The SEAL squadron commander looked to the president. Mr. President, if you want to see the dog, I advise that you bring treats, he said through a smile. Obama gave Cairo a treat and thanked him for his service on the mission. After their service, military dogs rejoined civilian life and often faced many of the same struggles that human veterans do. For several reasons, the whereabouts of Cairo remain unknown to the public. However, it is reported that he is alive and well and living with an owner somewhere in the United States. So the next time you see a smaller German shepherd in a park or on a walk in your neighborhood, tell him he's a good boy, just in case it's Cairo. Mini story number seven, the Grigstown Cow. November 23rd, 2002. The New Jersey Park Office Dispatch had heard this call before, a large ghost of a cow roaming through Grigstown. By now, this cow was famous, not New Jersey devil-level famous, but up there as far as local cryptid urban legends go. The description fit the profile, a large black and white bull seen through heavy fog. However, each and every time an investigator was sent out to fetch the Grigstown cow, they never found it. No tracks, no evidence that a cow was ever there. The onlookers reported that it simply disappeared into the fog. This happened on occasion for 20 years, only fueling the local legend. Half of everyone you'd meet in Grigstown reported seeing the ghost cow at some point. But this call was different. The Grigstown cow wasn't shrouded in fog, disappearing into the night. It was stuck in a ravine, in clear view. The woman who took the call sent someone out to investigate, and sure enough, there was the Grigstown cow, in the flesh, stuck in a ditch in a ravine. The cow is old and arthritic, its eyesight failing, but it was real. Thirty years ago, this area of New Jersey had several thriving dairy farms. One of the bulls must have escaped, and with its extreme fear of humans from its treatment on the dairy farm, avoided all human contact for that entire time. For 30 years, it must have foraged for food in the wilderness, surviving all alone. The only time it was ever seen was during periods of intense fog, where the cow would be spotted before it could spot humans. Several local veterinarians arrived on the scene. They reported the cow was incredibly old and deemed it in too poor of health for any treatment and recommended euthanasia. The massive, aging bull, surrounded by humans he was always so fearful of, was put down there. But as the saying goes, a legend never dies. The Grigstown cow is a rare example of a conspiracy theory or urban legend or wives tale or ghost story actually being true. Mini story number eight, going home. The kitchen was one of the most advanced in the world. However, it had to be compact. Chefs dressed in all white shuffled around the kitchen, creating immaculate dishes to serve to hungry high-class passengers. In a corner stood a massive reinforced tank filled with cold water. Inside were hundreds of lobsters. Just a few decades prior, these armored ocean bugs were widely regarded as strange and disgusting, 
and were often fed to prisoners and were only eaten by those in extreme poverty. In the 1800s, thousands of lobsters would wash up on New England beaches where they would often be buried or thrown back into the sea in order to avoid them rotting and causing the beach to smell. Food that is now widely considered edible opulence was then regarded as just downright gross. But around the turn of the century, with the advent of more efficient means of transportation, North American lobsters were slowly becoming the popular delicacy that they are today. In this strange paradox of being viewed as both lavish dish and simple protein for the poor, these lobsters sat in the motion of the ship, subtly rocking the water in their tank back and forth, back and forth. Every so often, a brave patron would order the lobster, and then a chef would reach into the tank and throw it into a pot. And that would be the last the other lobsters would see of their old compatriot. And there these lobsters sat, until suddenly a jerk splashed some water out of the tank, and the lobsters were now crammed to one side. Pots, pans, rolling pins, and knives flew off of their cooking stations. A surly French chef with an enormous black mustache nearly lost his footing. The kitchen crew yelled at each other and then sent someone out to figure out what had just happened. Cabin boys soon came in to help clean up the kitchen now in disarray. Eventually, however, people began to leave and not come back, until the only denizens remaining in the kitchen were the lobsters in their tank. Over the next hour, the lobster's chamber began to lean slowly to one side. Water began leaking over the edge as lobsters fought their way from the bottom of the pile. Suddenly, the tank flipped, and all of the lobsters were thrown to the wall of the now inverted kitchen, which was now filling with water. Among the floating pots and pans, flanks of steak, containers of seasoning and fresh vegetables, the lobsters entered the icy water of the ocean they had been taken from so long ago. As the Titanic sunk into the Atlantic, perhaps the luckiest lobsters of all time made their break for freedom. Times are getting hard, boys. Money's getting scarce. Times don't get no better, boys. Gonna leave this place. Take my true love by her hand. Lead her through the town. Say goodbye to everyone. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You can follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I often post historical pictures and paintings along with some quotes from history that I find interesting. If you want to see Historium episodes become longer and more frequent, you can donate to the show on Patreon. Part two of this series of animal-related mini-stories will air in two weeks. As always, thanks for listening.